Well, good morning. Um, thanks, Michelle, for leading us in worship. Um, it's, it's good, it's powerful to come together and to spend a, a large chunk of time in, in sung worship. Um, I'm not particularly musical myself, I'm not a singer by any stretch of the imagination, um, but there is something powerful in sung worship. And so, uh, yeah, it's good to do, it's good to come together, it's good when a large group of people come together to celebrate something. <clears throat> now, I'm going to be really careful this morning, because um, I'm aware that I often bring cricket into a sermon. I'm aware that you have to, um, you know, sometimes if you have a, a, an analogy that works, that's great. But there are other times when you have to think, no, no, just because I enjoy it doesn't mean everybody else does. So we're going to leave that one this morning. I'm not going to mention cricket. Anybody seen the football yesterday? <laughs> now, the passage we're looking at this morning, it comes from Romans. And I'm going to read this passage. And then, we are briefly going to think about the football yesterday. Okay? And I, I promise, no more than half an hour. <laughs> this is from Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. Romans chapter 12, from verse 9. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. This was... Just to give you a bit of background, the church in Rome at the time, Rome, the Roman Empire was, was in full force. Um, the Roman Empire, when they invaded new countries, when they went and, and took on new tribes and, and extended their empire, they had a deal. They had a deal. The reason their empire was so successful is because when they invaded a new nation or, 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 um, or, or took a new tribe over <coughs> and they won in battle, they would say to the tribe leaders, right, you have your gods, we have ours. So here's the deal. We're not going to force you to worship our gods. We don't, we don't agree with that. You can worship who you like. You can keep the gods that you want to keep. It's up to you. We are not going to interfere. As long as you pay your taxes, as long as you don't rebel, as long as you're obedient, we will leave you be. But, alongside your gods, you have to worship Caesar. Okay? So that's the deal. You, we'll leave you to worship your gods as long as you worship Caesar, our, our leader. Now, of course, for a lot of countries, a lot of tribes, they thought, well, that's not so bad. We don't lose our, our heritage, our traditions, our, our customs. We can keep doing the things that we've always done. The Romans are going to let us do that. That's fine. We've just got to acknowledge Caesar. And to be honest, he is our new leader, so maybe that's not such a bad thing. For the early church, this was a bad thing. This was a problem. Because, of course, God says, hold no other God than me. Worship me. Do not bow down to idols. Do not bow down to false gods. And so when Paul writes to the church in Rome, he's writing to a church which is under permanent persecution, which is living at direct odds with the society in which it's based. People who have to live a life of rebellion in order to practice their faith. They can't just get, go about their daily lives and and, and, and be Christians and not have any persecution, they have to actively say, I am not going to bow down to Caesar. I recognise Christ. I recognise my God alone. So Paul writes in this letter, and in chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes, 
Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we read these words and when we bear in mind the context of the church in Rome at that time, the people who received this letter for the first time, who read these words, there are some parallels that we can draw with today. Now, to be honest, we have it easy in comparison with the Roman church because we don't have this, this direct refusal that we have to practice. To, to, we're not forced to, to worship the Queen or the Prime Minister. Instead, we're free to worship as we want to worship. We must never take that for granted, the freedom that we have. But you see, what we do have is an awful lot of people in a local area and nationally who look at the church and say, what are you on? Give up. What on earth are you doing? How on earth can you believe in, in this God that, that I'm afraid doesn't exist? How on earth can you, can you pray and then try and read into certain things that happen and claim them as answers to prayer? You can just Google half the things you pray about. You'll soon get an answer much quicker than God. How on earth can you read this book that is full of nonsense, like fairy stories or moral fables at the very best? How can you say that that's a guide to life? It's so out of touch with the modern world. So back to football. I know... A lady, it's in fact um, my grandmother-in-law. She's um, a wonderful woman. Um, she's in her 90s and she's, um, in fact, like some of our wonderful women here, um, is, has got the, the, the verve and the life and the strength and the passion of, of, of a, a 30-year-old. It's incredible and I'm in awe of people like that. I really am. And um, I, 
I really like talking with Joe's grandmother because you kind of forget that she's in her 90s and you, sort of, you, can, you, can, you feel like you're talking to um, a, a, someone of your own age, regardless of what that might be. And she knows that I enjoy football. And one of the things that we've always clashed on is the fact she always says, oh, football's, football's it's just a stupid sport. You get all these, all these men, they score a goal, then they jump on each other like silly boys. What sort of example is that? And she's got a point. I can't deny that. Sometimes it's a bit over the top and, you know, I'm, I'm not one. I, 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 I'm not like that myself. Um, when I used to play football, if I scored, I might stick a hand in the air. I wouldn't go in for all the sort of the acrobatics and everything. I'd put my back out. But you see, yesterday, England-Sweden, World Cup quarter-final. There's a lot of pressure on the game. It's quite a nervous game. And um, a cross comes in. um, Ashley Young puts in a corner. Ball comes across. Harry Maguire, somebody who some of us would never even have heard of. This time last year, I think it's probably fair to say that most people in here, there might have been one or two that had heard of him. Most people would never, ever have heard of him. Yesterday, he rose like a salmon in the middle of the Swedish box and powed a header past the Swedish goalkeeper to score England's first goal. And then he looked for a second in disbelief, checking the linesman wasn't flagging offside, checking the referee hadn't disallowed it, and then he was off, racing off to the touchline, diving on the floor to be mobbed by his teammates, the substitutes, by everybody that could get anywhere near him. They piled up in a sheer moment of joy and celebration. Like a lot of silly boys jumping on top of one another. But you see... Harry Maguire, this time last year, we'd never heard of. But he spent his entire life building up to that moment. He was the kid who was kicking around a football in a school playground when it was freezing cold and pouring with rain and everybody else was at home playing on their, on their consoles. He was the kid that was still standing there kicking a ball against the wall, trying to get that contact perfect. He was a kid who played week in, week out for his team, who didn't go to family functions, who... May have given up on church. We won't go there this morning. Um, But who who trained and trained and trained. He was a kid who devoted everything. He would have made huge sacrifices in his life so that he could 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 ply his trade, he could become a professional footballer. He would have overcome injuries. He would have overcome um, all sorts of different obstacles. When he first joined his professional club, he played 90 minutes and they sent him out on loan to some, some corner of the country that he'd never been to before. He was young. He was, he was a teenager. Yesterday, in a World Cup quarter-final, he scored for England. He fulfilled a dream. That moment that for all of his life, there would have been times when he would have been the only person Even his parents, his coaches, would have doubted that he was going to get quite to the top. But he never, ever lost his belief. And yesterday, in front of the world, he fulfilled what he always believed he would fulfil. Now, of course, England might not win the World Cup. They might not win the semi-final. But Harry Maguire will always, always be able to say, that was why... I made all those sacrifices. That was why I was different to all the other kids, to all the other students. That was why I did what I did and it paid off. So, 
this passage in Romans. There's an awful lot of instructions in there. And an awful lot of those instructions, to be honest, the world would look at us. The world would look at us. Now we've got programs at the moment. You know, Romans says love must be sincere. There are programs on our telly like Love Island where love is not sincere. Love is, love is this mythical, this awful, this, this dirty, this terrible thing. Love has been rubbish. That's not love. Love must be sincere. We must hate what is evil. We must cling to what is good. We must be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's not easy to do in a world that says you deserve justice. You deserve to be, you, you deserve to be compensated if you're wronged. Honour one another above yourselves. That's so hard to do in a world that says, no, 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 you fight for number one. You fight, no one else is going to do it. You fight for you. Paul says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal. We should always have this, this energy, this determination in a world that so often says, oh, let it go, chill out. Look, things are all right as they are. It's difficult to, to have zeal and say, no, they're not. We are going to make a difference. We are going to stick to our principles. Be joyful in hope. Hope. It's a word that we often use in church, isn't it? Hope is so often overcome by doubt in this world. I really hope that this is going to happen, but it probably won't. Knowing my luck, that would be typical, wouldn't it? It probably won't. How often do we hear these sorts of sentiments? But we should be joyful in hope. Do you know what? I hope this is going to happen. I believe it's going to happen. And do you know, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't that be brilliant if, if this thing that, I'm, that I really want, if that happens? We should be joyful in our hope. Because we have our hope in Christ. And we know that he's already, he's already been, he's already fulfilled the promises that were set out in, in the scriptures of the Old Testament and he will fulfill the promises in the New Testament one day. We should be patient in affliction. Again, how can we be patient in affliction? In a world that says if you're suffering, do something about it. Don't put up with it. If you're suffering in your current circumstances, change your circumstances. Well, to a certain extent, yeah. We should be, we should be looking to, to, to act, but only when God calls us to. Only when God says, change your circumstances. And we will know. We will know when that time comes. Because God is clear in his instruction. Be faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Our prayer life should be at the top of our agenda. We should constantly be, be, be in conversation with God. Again, a world that says, so you're telling me you talk to someone who's not there? Without a, without a phone? Without FaceTime? How does that work? Can't have a conversation like that. We should be faithful in prayer, Paul says. Ignoring what the world tells us to do. Practice hospitality. Look after one another. You know, all of these things are contrary to so much of the teaching of the world around us. 
We should bless those who persecute you. And he reiterates, doesn't he? Bless and do not curse. <laughs> Sometimes we, we can, you know, oh, I can't believe that person said that. Oh, well, bless them, Lord. That's not a blessing from us. That's us being sarcastic. God says, don't be sarcastic. Be genuine. Love must be sincere. Show love. Even if people persecute you, show love. He's writing this to a church that is, that is living in a hostile environment. A church that is struggling. And he says all those enemies, all those people that, that curse you, that persecute you, all those people that are just waiting for you to put a foot wrong so they can chuck you in prison, or worse, pray for them. Bless them. And don't curse them. Bless them. Later on, of course, he reminds us of the proverb that puts an interesting twist on that. Proverbs 25. Paul, Paul references it later on in this passage. He says, he reminds the, the Romans that the proverb says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, they might be your enemy, but look after them. Treat them like a, like a Christian brother or sister. Feed them when they're hungry, Give them something to drink when they're thirsty. You know, take care of these people. Because (laughs) in doing this, you'll heap burning coals upon their head. They'll hate it. You know, enemies enemies are supposed to be in conflict. Enemies are supposed to oppose each other and, and take each other on. If someone tries to pick a fight with you, and you say, what can I do to help? What can I give you? No, I don't want anything back. What can I give you? If, you're, if an enemy is nice to you, it's, it's really irritating, isn't it? It's really irritating. I remember when I was, when I was working up in the city, there was um, an underwriter that I wasn't particularly keen on, and um, I'd often have a good old moan about this person. And then one day they invited me to this fantastic restaurant for a meal to say thank you for all the business you've put my way this year. And when I got the invitation, I thought, oh, how am I supposed to respond? I feel awful now. That's not fair. I wanted to get an email saying, Tom, I really don't like your broken style. You, you, you know, you, I don't like the way you go about your work. I, I want to I oppose this person. He's taking me out to dinner. He's being really nice. He's spending a lot of money on me. Oh, he's not a proper enemy. But of course, that's a trivial example compared to what Paul is saying. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Do you know, I felt the burning coals in that, in that example, as trivial as it may be, because I suddenly realised how wrong I'd been. I suddenly realised how the guy's just doing his job. And now, actually, when the professional veneer has been stripped away, there's a genuine heart underneath that says, I've got my style, you've got yours, but do you know what? You're not that bad to work with. I felt the burning coals. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. We should recognise in one another what we're going through. We should empathise with one another. We should always consider why someone has has reacted to us the way they have, why someone has treated us the way they have. Because we can never be sure what's going on in their lives. We should, in effect, always give people the benefit of the doubt. Because God gives us the benefit of the doubt. When we don't honour him, when we don't bless him, when we act in a way that we know isn't going to be pleasing to him, he still loves us. 
He gives us the benefit, every benefit, of a relationship with him. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. We shouldn't be involved in, in, in class war, or we shouldn't be snobby, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't lord it over people that have less than us. Instead, we are called to be generous in our giving. We should be charitable, we should look out for those in need, enemies or friends. It doesn't matter, we should look out for one another, we should look after one another, we should love our neighbour. Again, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Now, of course, we shouldn't go looking for revenge. Do not repay evil for evil. The world tells us that we should, but the Bible tells us that we shouldn't. We should not go looking for revenge. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. doesn't mean to say that we should please everybody. See, Paul says here, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. He doesn't say, bend over backwards to please everybody. He doesn't say, if, if your Christian values are causing you a problem, look for compromise, water them down, dilute them, justify it, it'll be okay. He says, do what is right by God, by Scripture, in the eyes of everybody, so that all those people around you those people that are, are, are causing the issue or whatever it might be, so that they see you acting in a Christian way, doing what you believe is right, rather than conforming to the ways of the world, which we're told not to do. Conform to the ways of God. If it is possible, he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. How many of us feel a bit guilty about people that we can't live at peace with. Conflict and, and difficulty have occurred and, and no matter how hard, we, hard we've tried to resolve that conflict and to, to make things good, the other person just doesn't seem to come round to the idea or maybe there's something in us, we just can't, we just can't seem to, to, to get on with this individual, to make this situation right. Paul says don't live in a, in a, in a sense of guilt. Don't carry that burden. Let it go. Let it go. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But if it's not possible, if there are circumstances outside of your control, accept that actually that relationship, I've got to give that to God. I've got to leave it be. I've done all I can. We shouldn't be burdened by guilt. So often I've, I've been out with with, um, with friends and I've made a flippant comment about something, being a bit, a bit cynical or something, and I've had the old, not very Christian. <laughs> and you think, oh, it was, it was a flippant comment, it was a joke. But, you know, people will always look at us, look at Christians, look at the church and say, shouldn't be acting like that. And half the time they don't know why. They can't point to scripture and say, say where, that, where that comes from. It's just that they've had some sort of um, Christendom-induced idea put into their heads that we should act in a certain way. And of course, we should act in a certain way, but it's not always black and white. And Paul says, don't beat yourselves up. Some, some relationships cannot be reconciled. We shouldn't stop trying, but we shouldn't be guilty either. He says, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. It's interesting, isn't it? 
He doesn't say, he doesn't say that we should be these, um, these do-gooders all the time. We should, of course, we should, of course, do good in our lives. But Paul says God is the judge. We are not the judge. We should try our best to be Christ-like. We should try our best to live a life that reflects our faith. But we are all sinful people. We all carry sin inside us. Each of us. God is a God of, of reality. He knows there'll be times when we get it wrong. Paul says, leave the judgment to God. Out of love, God sent his son into this world to die on the cross, to pay the price for our sin, to take away the burden of sin and guilt that we would otherwise carry with us so that we can have a relationship with God, so that we can know that our eternity is secure with Christ. And it's a chilling message that those who don't take the opportunity to give their lives to him, those who actively rebel and reject God, they will be subject to God's wrath. And finally, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I can understand when people see a bunch of grown men jumping on top of each other in a corner of a muddy field, cheering and shouting, acting like children or worse. I can understand that. I can also understand why people who don't know God look at the church, look at Christians and say, why on earth don't you just have some fun? Why on earth don't you, don't you have the extra drink? Why on earth don't you, don't you go on the stag do to Amsterdam? Why on earth don't you indulge in, in, in your deepest, darkest desires? Why on earth don't you go and person who's just pulled out on the roundabout in front of you and almost caused a collision? Why on earth don't you do what you want to do? But you see, they're only seeing us in that moment. They don't know the history of us. And when I say us, I don't mean the individuals. I mean the history of God's people. They don't know that God has been faithful to his people since, since Genesis, since the very start. That's why I began this morning reading the, the account of creation. They don't know that God has, has been faithful to his people, has fulfilled promise after promise, prophecy after prophecy, that God sent his son into the world to die for us. That even today, God still performs miracles. God still saves people. God's forgiveness is still there for each one of us. The promise of heaven and eternity is still there. It's still just as real as it ever has been. And it always will be. And so, when we are seen in that one moment, and people say... Give it up. They don't know that actually we haven't even started. You know, our lives revolve around our God. Our very existence is rooted 
in our faith in God, in our hope, in our love. Our passion should be there for all to see. It might not be fashionable right now, but every day for us, every day, Jesus could return. That, that, that life of passion, that life of commitment that we have dedicated to him will be rewarded. We might look a bit stupid to the world around us for not conforming. We might look a bit odd. There might be people that say, Christianity is ridiculous, it's stupid. Those people, they go and sing songs and they're all smiley and they read their scriptures and they do their prayers. Yeah, okay. If you don't know what has gone into our faith, if you don't know what lies behind our faith, then it probably does look a bit stupid. Just like anybody that doesn't know what Harry Maguire's been through to get on the end of that cross and score that goal for England in the World Cup quarter-final yesterday, you would, look like, you would look at him and say, what an idiot, he's 25 years old, grow up, mate, get up off the floor, stop jumping around and screaming with all your mates. Yeah, you would say that. But when you know what that moment means, you would say, good on you, enjoy it, you deserve it, well done. Just to finish this morning. About ten years ago now, one evening, I was walking back through Lake Meadows. I'd done a day at work and um, it must have been about seven o'clock, something like that. And I was walking along and um, I became aware of three little boys, probably seven or eight years old, and um, a mum with another toddler in a, in a pushchair. And these kids were all standing underneath a tree, looking up, pointing. They were, they were trying to throw a tennis ball up into the tree. And when I looked up, I could see that quite high up, there was a football lodged up there. And they were throwing this tennis ball, and sure enough, it was, it was actually this time of year, and the, the foliage was quite thick. Eventually, the tennis ball didn't come back down either. And I walked past, and the mum said to me, excuse me, you couldn't help us get the football down. It's, it's my son's birthday today. He's just unwrapped it. We've come over to the park. The first thing he's done is drop-kicked it. It's got stuck up in a tree. And I've got to go home soon. He's got, he's got friends coming round for dinner. And so, this was ten years ago. I was a bit younger and a bit more agile than perhaps I am now. I said, yeah, sure, no worries. So I got my bag and I hooked it on the highest branch I could reach, thinking, well, I'm taller than her and taller than the kids, so they're not going to run off when I'm halfway up the tree. So I got that out of the way. And then I started climbing this tree. And I got quite high. I used to be a very good tree climber when I was um, in younger years. And uh, anyway, I, I got up in this tree, and eventually um, I, I suddenly saw the branch where the tennis ball was. I gave that a shake, the tennis ball fell down. Then one of the kids tried to lob it back up and almost knocked me out of the tree. Um, and I kept on going higher and higher, and I got to the, the branch where the football was, and I, I edged along these two branches, and I managed to get the ball out and drop it down to the kids. And immediately, it was just, oh, thanks, mate, thanks, mister. And the mum shouted her thanks, and then the kids were off running across the park, and the mum obviously had to, had to follow them. And so I'm left up this tree, which is, which is fine. I thought, oh, I, can, I can get down, that's, that's all right. And then I became aware that suddenly, I'm up this tree, and I'm in pretty much an empty park. There are these kids just disappearing into the distance. And there's, there's a lady who's walking a dog, a little Jack Russell thing it was. And I thought, this is going to look really odd. 
This is, this is going to look very, very odd. So I'm just going to stay up here. There's quite a lot of foliage. She probably, she probably won't even notice me. I'm just going to stay here. And so I'm just sort of stood there thinking, oh, I'll just let her go by. And she, she walked along. And sure enough, she, she walked past the tree and she didn't notice me. Until a squirrel came racing from another tree or somewhere on the floor, racing across the path that they, her and her dog were walking along. Her dog went ballistic, chased the squirrel, and the squirrel comes running up my tree. And it, it came up and it sort of looked at me and suddenly didn't know where to go, and it went down a branch, jumped into another tree. But this woman, of course, had seen this squirrel, watched it go up the tree, watched it jump into the other tree, and then did a double take. And she sees this guy in, in suit, collar and tie, just standing up in the tree like this. And she just stared at me. And I, I, I just sort of said, Hi. And she carried on walking, looking. Every now and then she'd look back over her shoulder. But you see, she looked at me. In that moment, she didn't have a clue what, what had happened. She looked at me and she thought... What on earth are you doing? Why on earth is this guy in, in a smart suit, collar and tie, standing up a tree? What, what's going on? And she just walked away. Now, I, I've never seen that woman again. And I dare say that she went home and she told her family, you'll never guess what, there was this nutcase in the park. He was absolutely, he had a screw loose, I'm telling you. She didn't know. Why? What had happened? She didn't know that actually I was trying to help this kid who'd lost his football on his birthday and that I'd done a good thing. (coughs) So often, the world will look at us and they won't know why we're doing what we're doing. But you know what? Don't don't stop doing it. Don't apologise for being a Christian. Stick to the principles set out in Scripture. Those values that we were encouraged to keep. Love sincerely. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's seek to live lives that reflect those instructions. Yes, they were given to the the church in Rome all those years ago, but yes, they are relevant and needed in this world. Everything that we stand for, everything that we are, should reflect the values set down in God's word. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for that church in Rome, which was miraculous in itself, just for, just for coming into being. Thank you, Lord, for the faith of those early Christians, for their refusal to, to compromise. Even though sometimes it, it cost them their lives. Father, thank you for this letter that, that Paul wrote that we still have today. Thank you, Lord, that all scripture is God-breathed. And so we know that, that these words reflect your will for us. Father, help us to live lives that reflect your goodness. Help us to, in all, all that we do, serve wholeheartedly as if we are serving you. Father, help us to do all of these things and more to reflect your glory, to show your goodness, to glorify your truth. And Lord, especially, give us the strength when the world looks at us and mocks us or just doesn't understand us. Father, help us to cling to what is good, to hate what is evil. Help us not to become overcome by evil but instead to overcome evil with good. In Jesus' name, Amen.